Okay, the only thing I'm familiar with or aware of with the announcements, a couple of things, and uh, hmm, I didn't bring my phone. I think the, what's, what's the first Sunday in February, Bryce? Is that February 4th? While you're looking it up. Um, I'll be leaving tomorrow afternoon flying out to Kiev, so pray for safety on that flight. Uh, I'll encourage people to, what? That's what I thought, February 4th. Okay, encouraging people. I know that when the pastor's gone, people don't like to come. It's more comfortable, especially if it's cold, to stay home. But when we, you always remember two things. Number one is that it's encouraging, important, when we have a guest speaker to have a good audience. So that's part of our graciousness and kindness to a speaker. Second thing is that if guests show up, and they do occasionally, in the in the middle of a week, it doesn't look good if some guest comes in out of the blue, and there's three people sitting here because the pastor's not here. So that is not good. That is a poor testimony. So it's important for us to be here, John, and also part of our job as a congregation is to train new pastors and teachers. John Williamson will be covering the next uh, two Tuesday nights. Um, we'll have a couple of different speakers on Thursday night. You will enjoy very, very much. encourage you to be here. Also, um, Sunday morning, I didn't announce that uh, Sunday when I was going through this, Albert will be uh, teaching, Albert White will be teaching on the next two Sunday mornings. So God has graciously provided a, a nice number of uh, backup um, speakers to help us when... Uh, uh, when I'm gone on for various various reasons, pray for me. I'll be in Kiev. I'll be teaching a topic that's very very uh, very unfamiliar to me. I'll be teaching dispensationalism for like the sixth or seventh time over there. So I'm going to try to pray for time because I want to try to start outlining a book on dispensationalism. It's time. It needs to get out there. So. I'll be, be be working on that. So those are the basic announcements. The big announcement is on Fe- Sunday, the first Sunday in February, February the 4th, we will have our annual congregational meeting. So put that on your calendars and look forward to that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're just so grateful for your magnificent grace to us. You sustain us, you provide for us, you strengthen us. And Father, even though we go through various ups and downs in life, we know that that you have a plan, all things work together for good, and you are our, our strength, and you are always faithful to us. Father, tonight as we continue our study in Second Samuel, we pray that you would uh, give us insight into Scripture, see application in terms of how we think about things and how your character is displayed in history, especially through those who walk in dependence upon you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we are in 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. And there are several emphases in this passage. But the one that, that we see is the importance of divine guidance in the life of David. This sets David apart. One of the things that we need to pay attention to in this section of of 2 Samuel, going th- from chapter uh, 2 to chapter 7 is the contrast between David, the house of David, and the house of Saul, and those who are still loyal to Saul. Because it's a contrast in two different styles of leadership. It's a contrast in two different approaches to to life and to ruling and to administration. On the one hand, you have uh, David. Uh, David is operating on divine viewpoint and wisdom. And so part of what we see here are examples of wisdom in leadership versus arrogance in leadership or foolishness in arrogance in, uh, in leadership. So you have this contrast. David is wise. He is mature spiritually. And what happens in his decision-making is you see how it flows out of his grace orientation. And we really see that in the first seven verses of, of this chapter. David is gracious to his enemies. He's gracious to everyone around him. He is a picture uh, and a type of Christ, uh, the Messianic King. The Saulites, that is, those who are followers of Saul, uh, split the kingdom even more. They operate on human viewpoint, which means they're operating on, on foolishness and and arrogance, and it is destructive. It will split the kingdom. There's basically a seven and a half years of civil war, this horrible warfare that, that splits the kingdom. It's also a time... If we read carefully through this, it's a time when we must understand that especially the northern kingdom is completely under the authority of the Philistines. I've read through Second Samuel several times over the years, and one of the things that just when I read through, I don't always go stop and investigate problems, but that always sort of... Um, flitted around the edges of my mind was that David is recognized, he's anointed by the men of Judah to be the king in in Judah, and he lives in Hebron, and he rules in Hebron for seven and a half years. Then, as we're introduced to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul that doesn't go to the battle uh, at Gilboa, and so he survives, that he reigns for two years. 
You see, anybody have a question about that? David's reigning for seven and a half years in the south, and Ishbosheth is reigning for two years in the north. So what's going on in the north the other five years? What's going on in the north the other five years, I think, is that, because the text doesn't say this, but you only have two options here. Is Well, I guess you could have a third option, but it was, wouldn't make sense. Option one is that... When David begins his reign, those first five years, there's no king or any central authority in the north at all. They're under the heel of the of the Philistines, and it's just chaos and anarchy up there. It's miserable. And then they finally pull their act together. Abner comes along, and he's going to elevate Ishbosheth to to the throne. And Ishbosheth is. As, as his name, it's really a nickname, means man of shame, that Ishbosheth is going to just, you know, flub. He's a figurehead, and it doesn't work. And finally, Abner realizes he's, he's backing a loser, and he goes and tells David that he'll give David his, his loyalty. The other option would be to put, put Ishbosheth's reign at the beginning, and then the five years of no ruler in the north. And that just doesn't make sense because the text indicates that when when Ishbosheth dies, that David that's that's when David is recognized king by the nor- northern tribes and he goes to Jerusalem almost immediately. So it's probably what we're seeing here. The text doesn't bring this out, but the north is really under divine discipline. Remember, this is we're not too far removed from the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the northern kingdom is a mess in Israel and has been, and the problems there have been going on for several hundred years going back into the period of the judges. So we'll see that. So you've got this human viewpoint dominating in the north. They're all loyal to to Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was almost wiped out at one point during the period of the judges. It's just a a terrible culture. And, of course, that never really improves over the history of Israel because it's the northern kingdom that will eventually, uh, as they go rebel and separate from the southern kingdom, and it's the northern kingdom that through the Omri dynasty, Omri and his son Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel, they bring all of the all of the idolatry and the Baalism and the uh, fertility cults and all of that into the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom are the, are the tribes that are wiped out first in 722 B.C. and taken into, into captivity in the fifth cycle of discipline. So the northern kingdom is, always has these spiritual problems. The southern kingdom, not so much. And they have consistency in the rulership from David on. There will be a descendant of David on the throne in Judah. And they have several good kings. In the north, there are no good kings. So there's this contrast that the writer of Samuel is bringing out between David and the Saulites. David is wise. The Saulites are foolish. David operates on divine viewpoint. The Saulites operate on human viewpoint. David is walking by faith. That's exhibited in these... Uh, first uh, four verses, he seeks the Lord every time he has a decision to make. He's going to stop and go to the Lord in prayer. There's a great application for that. There's no decision too small to bother God about. 
A lot of people think that there are decisions that are too small to bother God about, but there are no decisions too small to take to the Lord in prayer. And David is doing that consistently through this period, and we see from our outline that God blessed in these uh, chapters from chapter 2 to chapter 10, the first major part of Second Samuel, that God blesses David and God unites and expands the kingdom. And for David, God is the one who is blessing David, and then David sins, and the second major part of the book is everything begins to fall apart. Now, in this section where we are uh, starting tonight, uh, we see how God establishes the basis for David's kingdom. If you've been writing down what I put up for an outline last time, as we go along, I'll kind of revise some of the headings. And I've done that for this section. I've put God again as the as the primary hero of the narrative. And he's the one who establishes the basis for David's kingdom because David is trusting in him. And David is has learned that God anointed him back in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16, and God is going to give him the throne and give him the kingdom, and he just has to learn to wait, uh, which is a problem we all have. He has to learn to trust God, uh, he has to learn to function on the basis of God's promises that God eventually give him the kingdom. He doesn't give it to him all at once. First, he takes him to Hebron, and he's in Hebron for uh, seven and a half years before God brings things to a point of total implosion in the northern kingdom and takes out Ishbosheth, and then David is recognized and accepted to be king uh, in the north. And at that, then he will rule in the north uh, for another 33 years. And so in this first part, we see David, God moving David to Hebron, and then this will be followed by seeing David's overtures to Jabesh-Gilead uh, from the second part of verse 4 through chapter 7. And then after that, and we may or may not get into that, we're going to see how God allows Abner... Uh, to bring in a uh, to to bring in another king for and this starts in verse eight and actually extends uh, down through uh, down through about uh, six before all of that pulls together so we'll we'll break that down as we uh, as we go along. So that's a basic, basic introduction. One of the things that we should be careful of, because it's easy to do, is don't read Second Samuel superficially. Think about what is God doing? What is God teaching? That's a great way to read through this, is why is this being said the way it's being said? I want you to just look briefly at the overview of chapter 2. David's anointed king of Judah in those first seven verses doesn't say a whole lot about that. We have two episodes. We have him going to the Lord saying, what should I do next? He says, go up to uh, to, uh, Hebron. And so that's about his big move to Hebron and the men of Judah recognizing and anointing him king. And then he finds out how the men of Jabesh Gilead took care of Uh, took care of Saul's body, and so he extends grace to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. 
Now, David's story ends there at chapter 7, and the scene shifts over to Abner and Ishbosheth. Now, there's a lot going on behind the scenes there that just skipped over because they're not important to what God wants us to learn. So Ishbosheth is made king of Israel, and this creates much more of a civil war, an intertribal war than we've ever had before. Now, it sort of reminds us of some things that happened during the time of the judges, and I'll get into that uh, into that eventually. But this is what happens. David's king in Hebron, they want to make um, Ishbosheth king, and he's in Mahanaim, in the, in the, actually it's in the Transjordan area on the east side of the Jordan, and it develops into this war. Now, we've got 11 verses, seven verses that talk, four verses that talk about the move to Hebron. Then we have three verses that talk about David's grace to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Then we have four verses talking about Ishbosheth being made king of Israel. All of this is setting the stage for what begins in verse 12 and goes down, goes down to verse 32, which means we have a 21 verses that are talking about this warfare, this brutal, violent warfare between the uh, basically the family of Joab. Joab is David's nephew, so Joab, Azahel, and Abishai are his nephews. And then on the other side, see, it's all family affair kind of thing. On the other side, you have Abner, and he's dealing with representing. Uh, he's he's the cousin of Saul, and he's backing Saul's son Ishbosheth to be to be the king. But you have twenty one verses there at the end of chapter two that leads to this. That's basically a twenty one verse preface. Now, if you're looking at proportionality here, which is one of the laws of, of Bible study, God's spending the Holy Spirit spending a lot of time telling us about this brutality and this warfare between Abner and and Joab. And we have to ask the question, why? What's going on here? And we have to probe that. And the conclusion for that really isn't at the end of chapter 2. It's at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And so that's really the conclusion to that first part is as it, it covers over a lot. So you have another six or seven months of this brutal warfare, this intertribal warfare going on in in Israel. So we have to think through what is going on here. What are we, why is God the Holy Spirit telling us about these things and not other things? Because there's a lot that was happening so we have to think about it. So that's why I say don't read Samuel superficially. What we're viewing here is the providential sovereignty of God. The providential, God is orchestrating and allowing these things to take place. He's not making it happen, but he is allowing these things to happen in order to do a number of things, because God is always multitasking. He did it in this situation. He does it in our lives. He's letting this go through for a while to um, bring opportunities for David to trust him. 
David is still learning to trust God to fulfill his promise. David knows that God has uh, had him anointed by Samuel. He is the anointed king of all the tribes of Israel, that he is destined to sit on a throne of the United Kingdom, that God has decreed it. David must sit on the throne and he will bring it about. So David has to learn to trust God. Then there's a theme that shows up also uh, that God is the one who blesses David. God is the one who unites the kingdom in his timing. He waits seven and a half years, and then he will expand the kingdom under David as he gives David victory over the various enemies of Israel. God is allowing this to happen because he wants David and the Israelites to understand that God's the one who builds the house. Psalm 127, 1 came to my mind. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. David is not using the normal human viewpoint political uh, machinery to put himself on the throne and to force the situation to unite the tribes. He's waiting on the Lord and letting the Lord build the house. And so it is going to come together. The rest of the verse reads, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So God is the one who's in control and David is learning to trust him that it's that his elevation to the kingship is not done through uh, any sort of human means or manipulation or methodology. That doesn't mean human volition is excluded because we see in the first seven verses that David goes to the Lord in prayer, but that doesn't mean he just sits there and folds his hands and has this sort of passive spirituality. As he understands what God wants him to do, as God affirms to him in his prayer what he wants him to do, then David does it. David, when he goes to the Lord in prayer, David David has his idea of what he should do. In verse 1, he says, It happened after this, that is, after he had the Amalekite who had claimed to have killed Saul but didn't, uh, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? So he wants guidance. And David had a plan. He had an idea of what he wanted to do, but he wants God to either affirm it or reject it. Give him specific guidance. Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And God said to Hebron. Now, remember when I've taught divine guidance before. What you often find in all of the teaching on divine guidance is a failure to properly interpret the text because you'll find passages like this. And I remember when I was um, uh, just out of college and I was teaching school here in Houston and I lived about three blocks two blocks from where I live right now in an apartment complex right next to Spring Branch Community Church. And there was a uh, a man who came who was candidating for, I think, youth pastor position. 
And so he spoke to the church, and he spoke to different groups, and there was a Thursday night college and career Bible class, which was pretty good. I went for the, both the Bible study and the great volleyball games we had afterward. But uh, this guy came, and he taught a one-shot lesson on Jonah and knowing the will of God. Now, I didn't know what I knew much later, but that was so. I found out later that is so typical of people who teach divine guidance. They go to some Old Testament passage and they use the divine, the special divine revelation that is emphasized in that passage, whether it's Jonah, whether it's David, uh, whether it's uh, Samuel or somebody else, in an era when it's an incomplete canon and an era when God is giving special revelation, and they use that as a paradigm for what should happen to a church-age believer. And in a church-age believer, we have a different scenario. The canon is closed. God is not giving special revelation. Not only that, the special revelation examples that we have in the Old Testament are specifically related to the leadership of of Israel, the leadership of the theocracy. You have prophets who receive divine revelation. You have kings that receive divine revelation. You have those who, uh, other leaders, priests, who are specifically responsible. They, it wasn't for every believer in the Old Testament. It was only those who were specifically related to God's uh, God's plan and the leadership of, of the nation. So you don't make those kinds of comparisons. When we have, uh, when you want to know the will of God today, what do you do? You do the same thing David did. You pray, and then you seek divine revelation. Where do you find divine revelation? You don't find it by gazing at your navel. John's right. You get it by going to the Bible, going to the Scripture, and developing wisdom. You don't get it, and you don't say, well, God, I want to know whether I should go to this church or that church or this school or that school or marry uh, this woman or that woman or this man or that man. You go to the Scripture and you develop a, a wisdom in your soul that gives you the capacity to make good decisions in life that are skillful, that are based on things. And when you're going to make a decision, one of my favorite prayers when I was younger, see, when you're younger, you make so many life determining decisions. When you get a little older, it, not so much. But when you're younger, you're always making decisions that you're going to reap the consequences from for good or for ill for the rest of your life. And I would always pray, Lord, keep me from doing something stupid and foolish. And many times the Lord did that. There were a few times that uh, he wanted me to learn a lesson. But Many times he kept me from doing something I thought was was the right course of action. And the Lord would just, through circumstances, shut down those opportunities. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, it's not Gideon putting out the fleece. Because that's just, Gideon wasn't putting out the fleece to determine God's will. He was putting out the fleece to avoid God's will. Because God had already told him what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to, to defeat the Midianites, and he, that isn't what Gideon wanted to do. He wanted to avoid that responsibility, so he wanted to block out 
what God wanted him to do and try to give God something that was too hard for him to do so he could use that as an excuse to rationalize disobedience. So what we do is we just pray, and if God wants us to go in a particular direction, which he does sometimes, then he will shut down other opportunities to where sometimes we're just put in a position where we got we have to go somewhere 20 years ago uh, this fall i got a letter from bryce inviting me to come up and candidate at preston city bible church in connecticut and i really did not have a plan to go to connecticut but he uh he twisted my arm and to get me to come up and at least teach a Bible study for three or four days and have a little conference, which I did just 20 years ago last week. And I thought, you know, every night I tossed and turned because that was the best group of people, the most positive group of people I had ever taught. And I thought, man, this is a great congregation, but I can't figure out how in the world to make the transition from working here in Houston uh, for for uh, tapes and publications over Barackett up there, and my wife, who was a school teacher, shifting from here to there, and I just concluded it isn't going to happen. There is no possible way. And then as the deacons there were trying to figure out how they were going to make an offer to me to go up there, a ad appeared in the Norwich Bulletin, the paper there, that the school district was looking for to hire in the middle of the spring. Now, if you know anything about teachers, they don't change jobs in the middle of a semester. They're looking for a teacher to hire who had, who was a native Spanish speaker who could who was uh, qualified in uh, uh, elementary education and could start putting everything together to pioneer a world language program teaching Spanish in the elementary schools in in Norwich. All of those qualifications, Pam met perfectly. And and I read that one ad. I remember I just said, came in, he emailed it to me. I said, Pam, we're going to Connecticut. And she said, what, are you crazy? I said, no, God has moved mountains and we're going to Connecticut. And she did not believe me. But I knew that this was not coincidental. But see, that's how God sometimes works. He doesn't do that all the time. And as it turned out, we she we we had a week to put everything together and fax it off to uh, Connecticut, which we did, and got all that done. They interviewed her over the phone, hired her two weeks later, sight unseen. With we found out later, twelve different. Uh, people within district had applied for that position with good credentials. So obviously God had a plan. It became clear. So sometimes that happens. All the other doors were shutting down, and this big opportunity presented itself. So that's how we ended up there. That's how God leads. You pray, and you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he directs your paths. You don't have to figure out what's where the red lights and green lights are. He will just direct your path, and that's what happens today. No special revelation of any kind. God just provides the opportunities. Well, that's what happened. Uh, and here, God has specifics. He says, go up, and David says, where to? And he says to Hebron. Now, the way this probably operated at the time, 
is that Abiathar the high priest is with David, and he has the Urim and Thummim, which were used in some way. They were stones that were on the high priest's ephod, and the high priest would use those in some way that we're not uh, familiar with to get divine revelation, whether they glowed, vibrated, uh, we don't know. Somehow they were used, and God gave specific information to David, so he is going to go up... uh, to uh, Hebron, and God is going to uh, provide for him. And so this doesn't always look like a real positive type of situation. What happens here that we see is that as David is obeying the Lord, God is going to, through warfare, through civil strife, through the murder of relatives and and, and the killing of relatives in battle, God is going to bring about uh, David's rulership over the northern kingdom. And and we see the dynamic going on here. As we look at this this episode, as soon as David gets uh, anointed king in Judah, what happens? Satan is going to bring a revolt. He's going to attack him. As soon as David gets the crown on his head, then Satan attempts to destroy evil, and there's this horrible civil war that goes on and a rebellion. And, in fact, there were probably many believers who united against David. But David is demonstrating grace orientation. He demonstrates the the faith rest. He is relaxed. And even though Abner leads this revolt against him, David is going to sit back and watch it happen. He's not going to get into it and manipulate things. He doesn't attack Abner when Abner starts raising an army. He sits and waits and lets God God handle uh, the situation. And so it appears that as we look at this situation that it just happens by an accident, but we see God is God is in control uh, the way this this whole thing uh, started. We can think of many different situations in history where one incident just uh, creates a conflagration. For example, at the beginning of World War One, you had the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, and in that whole situation, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he is the uh, <clears throat> heir to the throne and this just touches off, and there's all these little alliances that have been established between the different countries on each side, and as soon as he's killed, then it brings in different different countries on each side. Next thing you know, you're having the first major world war. You have uh, uh, other things that happen in different different scenarios. Battles turn on what seem to be just minor incidents like the Battle of Antietam was lost by the South because as the battle plans were being sent from Lee to one of his commanders, they were rolled up and hidden inside of a cigar, and the messenger was captured, and the the, uh, Yankee soldiers found the cigar and opened it up, found the battle plans. And so they knew what the uh, southern army was going to do, and that led to their defeat. Uh, God is in control, 
And so whenever any of these things happen, we have to sit back and trust in him. In a lot of ways today, we see similarities between the church and what was going on in Israel. The church in America is in a state of incredible fragmentation. The church in America is being led, by, for the most part, by pastors who do not understand the Bible. On occasion, they do get the gospel right, but they don't understand much about the spiritual life. You have a large number of pastors. You have men and women pastors who teach a heresy known as the prosperity gospel. You have many, many churches today that are oriented completely toward entertainment and giving the people what they want, what will make them feel good, rather than providing biblical teaching. We're basically letting, I shouldn't use this example because I'll get in trouble for it. Politicians have recently gotten in trouble for this. We're letting the inmates run the asylum. And they are, you're letting the kindergartners develop the curriculum for high school. And you're letting people who don't really know what church is about or what spiritual growth is about telling the leadership what they want, and then the leadership basically gives it to them. And the result is that nobody's growing, nobody is maturing. And you you get a group of people who are as far divorced from the biblical model for the church and spiritual growth as they possibly can be. As a res- and because of this, what you see is people coming together in in these churches, and they have so many different hidden agendas. Nobody knows anything about uh, about spirituality or carnality. They put an emphasis on many of the wrong things. Many of the people that come into churches, and this has been true for centuries, it's nothing new now, it just seems like it's blown out of proportion, where their various lust patterns of the sin nature are allowed to function freely and openly. For example, you have people whose lust pattern trends towards power lust. And so they get into churches, and they wield enormous power over people. This happens in a lot of independent churches. It happens in a lot of churches in the black community. And what goes on among pastors, in a certain segment of the black community is just, just will, will um, amaze you at the power that is wielded there. It happens in these health and wealth ministries, and what goes along with this is materialism lust. As they get power, they get money. And I was uh, awake about 3 o'clock in the morning yesterday, and I went in to watch a little uh, television and turned the television on, and there was a woman on there who has had a ministry. I remember seeing her on probably 30 years ago, and I was amazed. She she makes so much money. She has the best plastic surgeon in the country. She's 74 and looks like she's about mid-40s. Just, just amazing what, what goes on. And the Health and wealth, prosperity gospel that she promotes is alive and well. She's worth oh tens of millions of dollars and has 
eight or nine homes, and she has cars that are uh, worth uh, $100,000, $150,000, and all of these different things that are going on. And, and, and she's just one of a huge number like that. So the power lust had, blends over into materialism lust. And also you have so many in different churches who feed off of their um, their approbation lust. They get recognition. And in fact, it was funny, I was, had, the, my wife had the TV on this morning, neither one of us were watching it, had just gone from the news to whatever local talk show went on. And one of the local uh, talk show people was interviewing a lot of different ministry leaders and pastors on, on the show. And <clears throat> I didn't even pay attention to part of this, but they had two or three people there, and they were talking about this spoof comedy routine that this this guy had on, on YouTube. And so he had a character that he called Bishop Secular. You can look it up and look at some of these things. And he was a black guy, and... And as I said, oh, we'll play that. Let's hear what, what, what that comedy routine is. And I listened for a little while, and I thought, <clears throat> you know, that really wouldn't apply. A lot of white people would not, if they don't know the, what the culture in the black church, they, they can't understand it. And he's talking about how, and he, of course, this wasn't literal, but he's spoofing this. That back, He said, we remember back in the days when you had a choir. And here you have the choir, and you have everybody's got a title on the back of their choir robe. Now, nobody ever did that, but what he's pointing out is that, that in a lot of churches, there's all the ways, re- these ways you recognize what people are doing. So he was making this up, and he said on the back of one, you have choir leader, then on the back of another guitarist, back of another drummer, and back of another soloist, and the back of another soprano and alto, and all of this, because... That's what happens in a lot of churches. It's just all this recognition that the way do you get reason they go to church is to get all these positive strokes. And so the church today, it gets fragmented because you get all these people wanting power and then they're competing with each other. And that's not the point of the church, the body of Christ at all, is to have that kind of power. And then on the really dark side of all of this, you have the problem with sex lust. And you have in some denominations, you have problems with sexual abuse. You have problems that uh, have developed with with all kinds of different uh, different issues involving pedophilia and other things like that. And so when you get away from the Lord and you're not walking and trusting him to build a church and do it his way, then all of these things enter in and it just destroys the culture. And that's the same thing that's happened in that was happening in Israel. The northern kingdom is just totally fragmented because they've gotten away from the Lord and they're not uh, trusting in the Lord and so you've got all these believers in the northern kingdom who think they're following God's will by giving their loyalty uh, to Saul. And this is what's happened in the church today is people who talk God talk, and they have the structures and the forms of godliness, as Paul says and Tim, warns Timothy about, but they deny the power of it. And so it just leads to... Uh, this polarization within the community, and nobody's really walking with the Lord, but they use all the language, and there's too many sheep that just don't know, and they don't understand what what is happening and why it is 
taken place. So <clears throat> David is contrasting to that. There's unity in the southern kingdom. David is manifesting those traits of faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation. As a result of that, he's demonstrating humility and dependence upon the Lord. And the Lord says, go to Hebron. Now, here's a map because we need to orient here uh, geographically for the coming uh, lessons. On the west and the left, as you look at the map, you have the Mediterranean Sea. Then in the center of the map, you have uh, the Sea of Galilee in the north. This is the Jordan River that flows from the uh, north and Lake Hula down to the Sea of Galilee, and then from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. This is the border right now between Israel on the left and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan on the right. But during the days of, of the Old Testament, this period of David uh, from the time of the conquest of Joshua, you have three tribes that function here on the West Bank. This is called, it's from the perspective of Jerusalem, it's across the Jordan, so it's called the Transjordan. You have half of the tribe of Manasseh in the north, the tribe of Gad in the central area, the tribe of Reuben in the, in the south. On the Sith Jordan area, central Israel, you have the, the ten tribes are all in the, in the north other than the two and a half on the, uh, the Transjordan. You have Jer Jerusalem isn't on this map because this map is just is highlighting the Levitical cities and cities of refuge, but, but Jerusalem is right about here at the bottom of the B in Benjamin, uh, just in this, this area. This southern area is a tribal allotment to Judah and south of there, Simeon. And, and at, at, during this time of the period of the judges, they just kind of merged together and intermingled. This is the area where David is from. He's from the tribe of Judah. Here is Hebron. I'm going to blow this map up for you in just a little bit. And then the other major place that's talked about here is this place located right here, Mahanaim. So on this map... I have uh, highlighted those a little bit, and I've drawn this red line here because basically that which is south of the red line is Judah and under David's control, and so there you have stability. But for much of this time, uh, for probably five years, there's no stability on the north side up, up here in this area right up in here is where Mount Gilboa was located, and the Philistines had come up, and they had basically executed a movement around the left flank of Israel, and they've come in from the north. They've defeated uh, Saul in the north, and they've taken control by, uh, of, the, of the central hill country uh, in Samaria. So when Ishbosheth comes to the throne, Ishbosheth is going to be over across the Jordan in Mahanaim because there's basically no place where he would be safe over across the Jordan. This is uh, this is why you have this this distinction going on. So David is told by God to go to Hebron. Now he goes up with his family. It's um, he takes his wives with him, 
Uh, before I get to that, let me tell you a couple of things. The move to Hebron is very important. There's five things you should know about Hebron that make it significant. Back in 1 Samuel 30, David had distributed spoils from the Amalekites to the elders of Judah. This is going to gain favor with him because when the Amalekites came up from the south down here and they attacked and ravaged the cities and villages in Judah uh, all the way across uh, uh, where David was, when David defeated them, they took all this spoil back and they distributed it to uh, the the elders of Judah and this gained favor with him. What this shows is part of David's humility and wisdom. He didn't keep it for himself or keep it for his men, but he is concerned about the people who were the original property owners, and so he's trying to restore as much property to them as possible. So we see uh, that David is wise. He's wise in battle, and this is what we should look for in a godly leader, someone who is wise in battle, he's wise in uh, diplomacy, and he is able to uh, bring people together. And so this is what is what is taking place. So that's the first thing we should note about Hebron is it's in a law area where the people are sympathetic to David because of the way he has treated them. Second thing we should note about Hebron, it's it's the largest city in Judah, and it was a city of refuge for the region. So this map shows various cities of refuge. Mahanaim is going to be a city of refuge as well. That's where Ishbosheth will be. And a city of refuge was a place that if you were accused of manslaughter, that you could flee to that city and under the Mosaic law, And as long as you stayed within that city, you were protected. If you went outside the walls of the city, then uh, somebody who was seeking uh, revenge could, could kill you for the crime that you had committed. Now, this is important because many people in Israel, after the death of Saul, thought that David had killed Saul. David was responsible. He had fought for the Philistines. This was the rumor that would would have gone around. And so David is now going to be able to stay in a city of refuge where he would be uh, somewhat protected if that were going to be a case. He's in a uh, place where there was a haven. It's a Calebite city. That's the third thing you should know. According to Joshua 14.14, Joshua 15.13, this was given to to Caleb, and so there would be a spiritual heritage there in that in that city. Also, uh, we learn from uh, Joshua twenty one thirteen that Hebron was a city set aside for the Aaronic priesthood. So there's a priestly center here. So David has always protected the priests. So this is a good headquarters for him. He's got people there who, who ha- he has provided for and protected. It's a large city. It's a city of refuge. It's a city with a spiritual heritage. Uh, what other thing can you think of is in Hebron? The tomb of the patriarchs. That's right. This is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. And so this is a, a city that is significant 
for the history of Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, strategically, it's on the high ground, and this would be the fifth point. It's in the high ground, and it's elevated so it has military uh, strategic value. So the five things are David had provided for the people there and returned their their, uh, possessions. Secondly, it's the largest city of refuge in the area. Third, it was a Calebite city and has a spiritual heritage. Fourth, it it was a center for the Aaronic priesthood. And fifth, it has a a tactical or strategic value because it's the it's the high ground. So David is uh, put in a position by God that will strengthen his kingdom over the next seven and a half years. He's operating from a, a position of strength, and he uh, it takes care of people. He's not only been wise in battle and wise in diplomacy, what we learn from David throughout and what we've learned from David already and what we'll learn more about, he's wise in music, he's wise in aesthetics and art forms, he's wise in politics. All of this wisdom comes from his knowledge of, of the word. And so we see the elevation of his, of his leadership there. He brings his wives with him, two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and uh, that she's from up in the north in Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, that play on words there, the fool, the Carmelite. And he brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities. Notice the plural there. The cities of Hebron, not the city of Hebron. but the Because Hebron wouldn't have been large enough. How many people were with David? Well, we know he had around 600 to 700 fighting men, and they had their wives and their children. So he basically has a traveling city of about 1,000 people. There are a lot of towns in Texas who aren't that big, uh, which aren't that big. And so he has about 1,000 people with him. That would overload the uh, city of Hebron itself. So they're settling in the surrounding areas, and so... He has a strong support base from his own uh, from his own people, and the fact that um, he had married the widow of Nabal, she remember that wasn't very far away from uh, from Hebron, and so she is uh, she would have been uh, respected as well as the widow of of, of Nabal, who was a descendant of Caleb, First uh, Samuel twenty five uh, three. So he's got Abiathar, the high priest, with him. All of this just brings tremendous uh, prestige to him. But it's a large group, and they are there, and they will provide protection for the people in Judah. So this is why you don't have the fragmentation in Judah that they're not threatened by the Philistines. The Philistines have taken control in the north, but the uh, Judahites are holding together uh, in unity. And then um, David gets a message in the second half uh, of verse 4 that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Now, who were these men in Jabesh-Gilead, and why? do you remember why they uh, had this great affinity and respect for Saul? Saul was a Benjamite. And back in the period of the judges, 
if you go back to the uh, period of about Judges chapter 31, you'll discover that there's this terrible episode with the Benjamites, and there's a rebellion, and all the tribes are called to fight the Benjamites, and the result is that that uh, they're they're pretty much uh, wiped out, and they enter into this. They have a council, and they enter into this um, a co- covenant, but they don't have any women left. And the, but the, there's, the men of Jabesh Gilead didn't show up at that meeting at Gilgal. And so part of what happened in that covenant was that anybody who didn't show up, they were going to have to kill them. So they went go back to Jabesh Gilead and kill a bunch of their men, but they allowed 400 uh, virgins, their daughters, to survive. They married those uh, daughters to the Benjamites. This allows the tribe of Benjamin to survive and to begin to grow again. This is several generations before Saul, and it also allowed for the survival of the citizens of Jabesh Gilead. And so there was this this loyalty that developed, and this is why they were loyal to Saul is because he was a Benjamite. So if you don't understand a lot of the history coming out of the period of the judges, it's hard to make all these connections and get the... Uh, get the backstory. So David uh, learns that the men of Jabesh Gilead had respect for Saul. They took his body down. They buried his body, the body of Jonathan as well, and showed that respect. So David has to make a decision because this seems to be an act of loyalty to Saul. Well, are they going to be for David or against David? Are they going to create a uh, civil war type of situation? And so David is going to treat them in wisdom rather than uh, attacking them or assuming that they would be opposed to him. David is going to demonstrate wisdom. And in this episode, he is in some ways a type of Christ, and he Uh, acts with diplomacy like Jesus Christ does and allows them to make up their own mind about him. He treats them in grace. He's their, their potential enemies. He's going to invite them, as it were, to join in his kingdom and be loyal to them. And so he is going to uh, motivate them. And we see that in the language of verse five. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord. Notice the kindness, the positive nature of his message. You are blessed of the Lord. God has provided for you. He said, for, and the reason for this is then stated, For you have shown this kindness to your Lord. Now the word there for kindness, it's a bad translation in the King James. It's the Hebrew word chesed a word that we've seen and we've studied many times, and it has to do with covenant loyalty. They are loyal to their king. And so David recognizes that, that knows that you had to be loyal to God's anointed. Even though Saul was trying to kill him, he refused to take advantage of that and kill Saul when he had the opportunity. So he praises the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Rather than attacking them, he uh, he praises them. He says, you have shown this uh, 
covenant loyalty, this covenant love to your Lord, to Saul, and you have buried him. And then in verse 6, we read, And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. So the next thing he says is he calls upon the Lord this blessing. He says, may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. And on this slide, I have the Hebrew words here. The word emet is like our word amen. It means faithful or loyal or belief or truth. All of these different meanings come out of that that basic word group. And it's interesting how many times truth and faith, God's faithful, loyal love are linked together in the Psalms, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But the second time we have this translation of kindness in the passage, it drives me nuts. It's a different Hebrew word. So why do they translate two different Hebrew words with the same English word? You don't catch what's going on here. David understands God is has going to express his covenant loyalty to them, and as a result of that, David is going to express tovah. Tov is the word for goodness. He will express goodness to these potential enemies. He's dealing with them in grace, and so he recognizes that the other tribes of Israel are all part of the Abrahamic covenant, and his role as the Messianic king is to unite the tribes, not to divide the tribes, but to unite them on the basis of the law. You know, in our nation, what we need, we have such division today, but we need to have unity, but not unity at the uh, expense of destroying the Constitution. It has to be unity on the basis of the law. And frankly, there are too many people in this country who don't care about the Constitution. They're more concerned about their political philosophy. And so that's what's causing the problem. And so you can't have a president or leaders who are willing to sacrifice the Constitution for the sake of this sort of fabricated uh, unity. And that's also what happens in a lot of churches. That's why they throw out their doctrinal statement is they want to have unity at the expense of doctrine, not unity on the basis of doctrine. So David is extending grace to the men of of Jabesh-Gilead, and he is going to uh, demonstrate his his goodness to them. Now, in um, the Psalms, as I was looking at that, I thought, I know those words are connected a lot. So I started going through the Psalms, and I just put these together. There may be a few other references, but I thought this was interesting how David is the author of many of these psalms, how chesed and emet or emunah or amen are linked together. Psalm 25.10, all the paths of the Lord, all the paths, that's the direction of the Lord, his guidance, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. That means you're not walking in God's will if it's not characterized by chesed type of love and the truth. It can't be at the expense of truth. It says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 26, 3, 
For your loving kindness at your chesed is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Notice that love is not divorced from truth. Love is just not a feeling. Love is a mental attitude based on the absolute truth of God's word. In Psalm 40, verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared, he says, I have not hidden your righteousness. He declares it. That's the point of the negative. He declares God's righteousness. I've declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concerned, and there's our word pair, I have not concealed your loving kindness, your faithful, loyal love, and your truth from the great assembly. He has expressed these in songs and hymns that are sung in the congregation. He goes on to say, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your chesed and your emmet continually preserve me. Notice how those continue to be connected together. Psalm 57.10 says, For your mercy, that's your chesed, reaches unto heaven, and your truth under the clouds. Notice in the parallelism, chesed is like the other side of the coin to truth. Psalm 61.7, He shall abide before God forever, O prepare mercy and truth. There we have those that word pair again. Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. In this passage, and as well as in uh, Psalm uh, 86, let me see here, no, Psalm 89.14, we see this connection with the integrity of God. Love and truth are not sacrificed. Psalm 86.15, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. Psalm 89.14, one of my favorite passages, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Everything God does is, is built on that foundation of righteousness and justice. That's his integrity. And then mercy and truth are what flow out from that righteousness and justice. So there's no contradiction or conflict between these uh, characteristics. And then Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So again, the parallelism of chesed and emmet is seen in that verse. Other verses are Psalm 115, 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. And Psalm 117, uh, two, but his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. So if you look at this, and before I wrap up, I want to make this one connection. What's the history of this word? The first time chesed is mentioned, I don't think anybody here would guess who mentions it first. Lot, the lips of Lot, when he is delivered from Sodom, and he says in Genesis 19, 19, in, um, Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and die. So he recognizes that God saves him on the basis of what? The Abrahamic covenant. 
And then the next time we really see significant use of this is in Exodus. And I want to run through these very rapidly and make a point. Exodus fifteen thirteen. You in your chesed have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to be your holy habitation. And then in 26, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is speaking there. He shows mercy, loving kindness to those who love me and keep my commandments. The context there is forgiveness. We see this again in uh, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. There we have uh, these this word pair again, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So again, the emphasis is that his covenant love is forgiving. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering, abundant in chesed, loving kindness, forgiving iniquity in translation. Numbers 14, 19, pardon the iniquity of this people. Deuteronomy 5, 10, he shows chesed to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, And the context is forgiveness. Deuteronomy 7, 9, the context is is forgiveness. God is a faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. And all of this then is a, is what we see when we hear David expressing chesed and emmet to Jabesh Gilead. What's the context of chesed? Forgiveness. It's all about grace. And here are these potential enemies, and he's going to extend grace to them and forgiveness for whatever infractions may have occurred because he wants to unite the tribes under God on the basis of grace, not on the basis of political machination. So that's what we see exhibited here, and we'll continue to see in David's leadership in contrast to Ishbosheth and Abner. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be focused on your grace and your goodness as it should be emulated in our own lives. Father, that we may be grace-oriented and that we may deal with others in grace and in love and forgiveness reflecting your character. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.